Pray with me, Father in heaven, now we come. I pray for us that you would work in us in such a way that we would hear this word that's before us, that you would work it deep within us, that we might be people who love you and follow you. And Father, give you thanks. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning to you. Would you open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1? While you're opening your Bibles, let me just express my appreciation for the privilege of being here. As many of you know, uh, my being here on this particular Sunday is always in conjunction with a conference that's sort of jointly sponsored by the Navigators Ministry on campus and Grace EPC. And uh, I learned this weekend, I don't keep record of these things, but I learned this weekend that uh, we had our first such conference in 1998 And this is the eighth year, so this is the eighth time I've been with you in this congregation. Actually, my time with you goes back before that when I was here for a couple of men's retreats back in the days when you were still meeting in the school. And uh, it's always a delight to be here. I'm on the uh, list of those who receive Bill's tapes, and so it's not that I don't think of you uh, once a year because I think of you about every week. As I listen to Bill, because I've been here so many times, I can sort of visualize the congregation and visualize Bill here speaking. And so, but it is a delight. And um, just speaking on behalf of the Navigators, we are so grateful, so thankful for what this church has meant and continues to mean uh, to our Navigator ministry here at KU. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The title of today's message is Why Pray? And there's a question mark after that. Why why should we pray? For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we hold to, tells us that God from all eternity did ordain whatever comes to pass. If that is true, if God does indeed ordain whatever comes to pass, God has ordained whatever comes to pass, then we could ask the question, why pray? What difference does our prayers make? If in a similar vein, uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.8 that God works all things, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. 
And if that's true, again, we would ask, why pray? If God is working everything after the counsel of his own will, do our prayers have any effect whatsoever? Or are they just sort of playing games with God? Or take Jesus' words in Matthew 6.32, which tells us that our Father knows all of our needs before we ask. And so again, we could ask the question, that being true, why should we pray if God already knows our needs before we ask? Then, and this question probably strikes close to home for all of us, if so many of our prayers seem to go unanswered, then why pray? I remember not too long ago, I was... um, looking for something that I needed. It was very important that I needed for a course that I was going to be teaching. And I went to look for where it ordinarily was. And lo and behold, it was not there. And uh, I had sort of this panicky feeling. And I started to pray, Lord, uh, help me to remember where I misplaced this particular item. And the thought came into my mind, which I'm sure Satan planted there, why bother? God never answers your prayers. And many of you may feel that way. And so you ask the question, why pray? There are many answers that we could give to this right out of Scripture. But our text this morning provides us three answers why we should pray. But before we look into the text itself, I want to take an important side road. And I know that, Bill, having been in the book of Hebrews, and now I suppose you're still in chapter 10, But um, (laughs) how many months I won't ask that question. (laughs) But uh, he's probably already covered this. I'm, you know, we get the tapes about two weeks after you hear the messages here. But in Hebrews chapter 10, we are invited to come confidently uh, to the throne of grace by the blood of Jesus. Now, we have to remember that just in the prior chapter, in chapter 9, that the writer of Hebrews tells us that under the old covenant, while the temple was still standing, before that the tabernacle, that there were three restrictions about entry into the most holy place, that little room where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God symbolically dwelt among the cherubs. The first restriction was that only the high priest could go into that little room. The second restriction was that he could only go in once a year. And the third restriction is he could only go in with the blood of the sacrificial animal. By contrast, in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19, the writer says, having therefore confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart. And we see here that implied in that invitation, in fact, it's more than an invitation, he is urging us to come into the most holy place. And so it's now not just the high priest. That restriction has been removed. It's all believers, all brothers and sisters in Christ. And though it's not explicitly said, it's certainly implied that that second restriction only once a year has been removed because we're invited to come confidently. But the third restriction has not been removed, and that is to come with the blood. Only this time it's not the blood of an animal, but it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer says, 
having therefore confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We never have direct access to God. We always have access only through the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified, through his shed blood. I had a friend call me one day. Her husband uh, is one of these motivational speakers. It's a combination how-to motivational Uh, It's directed toward a particular industry, and uh, she goes with him oftentimes, and she called me and she said, uh, Jerry, people are frequently asking me, how do I get to know God? And I said to her, you know the answer to that, there's only one way that we get to know God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. You have to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ and his sinless life, in his sin-bearing death. No one has direct access to God. And as we consider the subject of prayer, though that is a side road to the particular text this morning, it's certainly not a side road to the subject of prayer. And every time I speak on prayer from any passage in the Bible, I always like to begin with that reminder that our access is through the blood of Christ. But the flip side of that coin is we do have access The the writer says that we can come with confidence through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so having dealt with the way in which we gain this access, the way in which we come to God with prayer, now let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and look at the text and the three reasons why we pray. The first reason is to acknowledge our dependence and our helplessness. Notice verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The Apostle Paul said, God put us in this situation. He said he put us in this situation where we were so burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. In fact, he said we felt we had received the sentence of death. That's helplessness. Here sits the prisoner on death row. And all appeals have been exhausted. And uh, he simply awaits the day of execution. And he is helpless to do anything about his situation. Now, there are two words that we can think of in our relationship to God. One is dependence, and the other is helplessness. We are always dependent upon, the, upon God for every aspect of our lives. Paul says in Acts 16 that it's in him we live and move and have our being. He says he uh, is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, but he himself gives us life and breath and everything else. Every breath that we receive is a gift from God. We are utterly dependent upon God. Now, the fact is, in God's good providence, he usually meets our needs and provides for us and sustains us through what we would call secondary causes or the ordinary events in life. Today, Farmers grow the food, and thanks to the good farmers in Kansas, we have bread to eat. 
and all of these things. And then there is a food processing and distribution system so that it ends up on the shelves of your supermarket and you can go and you buy the food. And the reason you can go and buy the food is because God has provided you an income so that you have money to buy the food. And we never think about the fact that God is orchestrating that entire chain of events so that when you go to the supermarket, there's food on the shelf to buy and you can take it home and prepare it and eat it. And in a very real sense, in the very most mundane affairs of life, you and I are dependent upon God. There are times when God brings us into such circumstances that we realize that we are helpless, that we are beyond what you might call his ordinary chain of providence. That for one reason or another, that which we normally expect is not there. Consider the nation of Israel out in the desert, and there was no food. Now, God could, in fact, God did provide food. He provided quail at one time. But God chose to provide this manna that rained down with the dew every night and that they went out and they gathered off the desert floor. And for 40 years, God provided <coughs> that food. But God, in, one, in many ways, let me put it this way, <coughs> God probably had a number of reasons why he chose to work that way. But one of the things he wanted to teach them was that they were absolutely dependent upon him. In fact, over in Deuteronomy chapter 8, when Moses is uh, speaking to them and they're getting ready to go into the promised land, where they are going to go back to the ordinary secondary causes, they're going to be farmers and vineyard workers and herdsmen and these kinds of things, and their food was going to come from what we would call the ordinary circumstances of, of life. And Moses says to them, remember how it was in the desert. Remember that you not only were dependent upon God for your food, because every day we are dependent, but in that situation, you were helpless. And sometimes God brings us into what seems to be, in fact, is, from our point of view, a helpless situation where we can do nothing to change the situation. And when we pray, <clears throat> we are acknowledging our helplessness and our dependence upon God. When we are on our knees, so to speak, whether you are physically on your knees or in an attitude of prayer, you are acknowledging that you cannot do anything about the circumstance that you're praying over. I was speaking at a family conference in Oregon in, 19, in the summer of 2004, and um, my left eustachian tube, for some reason, stopped up. And I'm already deaf in my right ear, so I was in the predicament of deaf in one ear and can't hear out of the other one. I mean, it was really true. <clears throat> and uh, there happened to be a doctor, a couple of doctors in uh, the audience, and uh, as one of them understood my plight, he said, <clears throat> I want you to come into Portland tomorrow to my office, and we'll see what we can do about that. And so the next day, uh, one of the conferees drove me into Portland. It was only an hour or so drive uh, to his office. 
and uh, let me out at the front of the medical building door and said, I will go park, but you go in and take the first right down the hall, this kind of thing. And as I was walking in, I prayed, Lord, would you enable Dr. Lockwood to determine what my problem is so that he can prescribe the right treatment? So I went in, and he went through his usual examination and uh, wrote two prescriptions and gave them to me. And on the way back to the camp, we stopped at the pharmacy and got those two prescriptions, and I began to take them. And within 24 hours, I was completely well. And so I went to Dr. Lockwood and I said, you know, you really hit it right on the head. You correctly diagnosed the problem and the medications that you prescribed were exactly what I needed. And he smiled. He said, you know, the reason that I could so quickly and so effectively diagnose that was because one of the partners in, in our um, practice there had had the same problem just a few months before. And I thought, you know, that afternoon as I went into the office, I prayed that God would give Dr. Lockwood the wisdom and the insight to correctly diagnose the situation. And God had started to answer that prayer three months before when one of his partners had the same problem. But you see, when I was praying, I was acknowledging that I was dependent upon God. Now, I appreciated the medical expertise of Dr. Lockwood. And I know that in God's providence, he had been trained over the years. And and in his practice, he had gained experience. But by my prayer, I was acknowledging that ultimately we are dependent upon God. And this is the first reason from our text as to the question, why pray? And that is because it forces us to acknowledge our dependence and oftentimes to acknowledge our helplessness. When we come into a situation where we have, in effect, reached the end of all of the resources that God in his providence has provided for us, and we realize that we really are helpless, and we turn to God and we say to him, there is no other avenue unless you intervene. A lot of my prayers have to do with mundane things. God has been very gentle with me in my life, and except for the death of my first wife, uh, most of my trials are what I would call inconveniences and not you know, major life-threatening or life-altering situations. But I have a lot of those minor things. And uh, one of them is uh, uh, that I misplace things. I'm not sure that I misplace them. I just forget where I place them. That's probably more accurate to say. And one day, I was sitting out on our deck. This was a nice summer day. And I was, I was working on some material, a uh, message to prepare or an article that I was writing or something like that. I was sitting out on our deck. And the phone rang. And I was home alone. And so I left the material on the table there on the deck, and I went into the kitchen to answer the phone, and and then that phone call caused me to go someplace else in the house. And about 30 minutes later, I finally come back to what I was going to do. And I thought, now, where did I put those papers? I mean, in 30 minutes, I had forgotten. And then the thought just came into my mind, look out on the deck. 
Now, I never hear the voice of God from heaven, but I often get these thoughts in my mind. And so I went out and looked on the deck, and sure enough, they were there. And, you know, the, the thing about that is I never, ever do that kind of thing sitting out on the deck because we usually don't have that nice of weather in Colorado. But uh, that particular day I was, and it just never occurred to me. I, w- I was looking in every place in the house where I might possibly be sitting to work on that project except for the deck. I was helpless to do anything about that situation. And when I prayed, I acknowledged my helplessness. And this, from, at least from our text here, this is the first reason why we should pray. To acknowledge that, you know, we come to situations where we despair. In Paul's case, he despaired of life. And he felt he had received the sentence of death. And our situation may not be that radical. But we come to the place where we realize that we are absolutely helpless to do anything about the situation. The second reason suggested for us here in our text is to acknowledge God's power. First of all, we acknowledge our dependence and even our helplessness. And secondly, we acknowledge God's power. That is, we acknowledge God's power to intervene in our situation and to remedy the circumstances. He says, we re- he says this was to teach us uh, to rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. Now, God who raises the dead, is, that's very appropriate because he felt he had received the sentence of death. God not only raises the dead, God supplies our needs. God brings to mind uh, where something is when I misplaced it. God responds to these situations. And then Paul says he did deliver us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. Now, in prayer, we never know absolutely what the will of God is. We come and we ask God to answer a prayer, we ask God to relieve a particular desperate situation, or we ask God to meet a need that we are unable to meet ourselves. Uh, we come to him, and we, we, the reason we come to him is because we believe that he has the power to respond to our need. And so in prayer, we are acknowledging that God has the power to meet that particular need. Now, sometimes we get the idea that God's ability to answer our prayers is contingent upon our faith. And if God hasn't answered our prayer the way that we had wanted him to answer, that's somehow because we didn't have enough faith. But the fact is, again, we do not know for sure. When we pray, we simply do not know for sure what God's will is. When I ask God to... uh, you know, help me find those papers that I had uh, left and forgotten where I had left them. God did not have to answer that prayer. And it could be that God wanted me to start all over again. We simply do not know when we pray how God will answer, how he will respond. But we do know that he has the power to do anything that is according to his character 
and within his will. Throughout the scriptures, God is continually asking the question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? The first time he asked this question is in the 18th chapter of Genesis when he was uh, telling Abraham that, uh, in a, you know, in a few months that uh, Sarah was going to have a child. And, of course, Sarah was uh, 90 years old. Abraham was 99 years old. And uh, so, um, you know, they were saying, oh, yeah, God, you know, mm-hmm. we've been we've prayed for this for many years. But uh, we stopped praying a number of years ago because we'd reached the point where it's not humanly possible. And God said, why did Sarah laugh? And then in, in that context, he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? When we stop and think about it, we realize that every child that's born is born through the providential working of God. God working through what we might call the ordinary cause and effect relationships. But God is not limited to ordinary cause and effect relationships. God can do anything he wants to do that's in accordance with his character. And so he asks the question, it's a rhetorical question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And if we stop and think about it, the obvious answer is no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. The angel who came to Mary to announce to her that she would be the one who would bear the Messiah. And she asked, how will this be? And he said, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, both in the birth of Isaac and in the birth of the Lord Jesus, God worked a miracle. And sometimes God works miracles, and I understand, I do not know this directly, but I understand that in some of the more primitive areas, on what we might call the frontiers of the gospel, that God is working miracles quite often. We seldom see those today. But God uh, can also work through what we call providence. Now, I have used that word several times, and let me give you just a quick, easy definition of providence. Providence is simply God orchestrating ordinary events to accomplish his plan. You see, when I ask God to give Dr. Lockwood wisdom to diagnose my problem, God had, as I said, began to answer that prayer about three months before, and God was orchestrating all of those events so that at that particular time, God answered the prayer. God sometimes works through miracles. He has the ability to work through miracles. After all, all of the physical laws of the universe are his creation, and consequently, he is free to intervene and change those as he wills. He can turn water into wine. Jesus can walk on the water. Jesus can raise the dead. Jesus can feed 5,000 with um, a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish. And those miracles are absolutely no problem to God. Nothing is too hard for him. But most of the time in our lives, here in North America, God works through what we would call providence. But God, and here's what I want you to get, God has the power to orchestrate those ordinary events, ordinary cause and effect relationships to accomplish his purposes and to answer your prayers. And Paul said that God uh, raises the dead and he delivered us from such a deadly peril. 
and he will deliver us. And when we pray, our confidence should not be in our faith that I'm going to believe God that he's going to do such and such. But our confidence is in God that he has the power, he has the ability to answer our prayer if that is his will. When we pray, Father, if it be your will, would you do thus and such? That's not an escape clause. So that if God doesn't answer that prayer, we can say, well, you know, it just wasn't his will or something like You know, we don't, we don't want to think that God somehow missed out, that God didn't have the ability to respond. It is always if it be your will. When we think we know the will of God, when, when we, and I've heard people say, I'm going to believe God for such and such. That's presumption. Because we do not know whether God is going to give such and such. But we do know that he has the ability to do whatever he pleases. In the days of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet who prophesied uh, during the time that the Babylonian captivity was actually taking place. And in um, one of those occasions, when, when all of this was going on, God spoke to Jeremiah, and of course, Jeremiah was a prophet, and so he was speaking directly to Jeremiah. And God said to Jeremiah, uh, one of your relatives is going to come, and I want you to buy his field. Now, mind you that Jeremiah had prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come and was going to carry off the people and uh, Jerusalem was going to be sacked, the walls were going to be burned down, the temple was going to be destroyed, and yet God comes to him and says, uh, I want you to buy this field. That would be like if you can transplant yourself in your mind to the greater Washington, D.C. area, where, you know, if you think the cost of living is high here in Lawrence, you haven't seen anything yet to Washington, D.C. And, and one day, in our government, and without going into the ramifications of how this might possibly happen, but this is a hypothetical situation, our government announces that they're going to move the nation's capital to Lawrence, Kansas. And you have important real estate in the greater Washington area. Or is, to put it like Jeremiah, God comes to you and he says, I want you to buy that office building in downtown Washington. And you say, God, you've got to be kidding. This is going to be a ghost town pretty soon. And that's what God said to Jeremiah when he said, I want you to buy this field. And so Jeremiah, being the obedient prophet that he was, he went and bought the field, and then he said, Oh, Lord God, is anything too hard for you? And God answers. And God says, Nothing is too hard for me. Now, the book of Jeremiah ends with Jeremiah going down into Egypt, and we never know exactly what eventually happened in that situation. But uh, actually, that was just, you might say, a parable because God said, the reason I want you to buy this field is to be a testimony to the fact that I am going to bring people back. And though we do not know exactly what happened to Jeremiah's field, we do know that the people came back. And again, to use my hypothetical example, 
The government says we're going to move the capital to Omaha or Lawrence, Kansas, but in 70 years we're going to move it back to Washington. And basically that's what God said, and that's what God did. And my point there is that God did not work a miracle in that situation. He worked through ordinary cause and effect relationships. He moved in the heart of Cyrus, the king, but that's not a miracle. God does that all the time. God has the power to do whatever he wills to do, whatever is consistent with his character. And our faith should be not in our faith, not in believing that God is going to answer our prayer, but our faith should be in the power, the ability of God to answer that prayer, however difficult it might seem. I know one of my problems and something that I have to constantly work against is that I pray and I ask God to to do something, and then I begin to try to figure out in my mind how God might possibly answer that prayer. And I've learned that when I find myself thinking in those ways to just stop and say, God, that's your business. I'm not going to suggest to you how you can do it. I'm not going to give you any hints that you might possibly work this out. That's strictly your business. And in our prayer, we acknowledge the ability of God to do whatever he wills. The third reason why we're to pray is found in verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. I'd like to ask you this question. How many people have to pray on a particular request before God answers that prayer? Is prayer like signing a political petition that you have to get so many signatures, you know, on the petition in order for it to be valid? Is God waiting to see how many people will pray on that particular prayer request before he answers? Well, obviously this is not true. We have instances all through the Bible of individuals praying by themselves. We think of the Canaanite woman who came to Jesus and her daughter was oppressed by a demon. And uh, you remember that uh, because she was a Gentile and Jesus said it's not fit to, to take the food of the children and give them uh, to the dogs. And she had that answer. But, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Now, do you suppose that before she went to ask Jesus to heal her daughter, that she shared her prayer request in her small group the day before and said, would you ladies pray for me because I'm going to see Jesus and I'm going to ask him to heal my daughter? Obviously not. Many prayers in the Bible are the prayers of one person. And yet the Apostle Paul frequently asked the churches to pray for him. And here he talks, he says, you also must help us by prayer. And then here's the reason, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Why does Paul want many to pray? Because when the prayer is answered, then God will be thanked by many people. The more people that are involved in a particular prayer request, the more glory God gets as God answers that prayer and people thank the Lord. The basic principle underlying verse 11 is this. When we pray, we bring God into our situation. 
And then when the answer comes, we know that God has answered, and so we give him thanks. Actually, or obviously, God provides everything that we need. And and the pastor uh, earlier in the service today reminded us that we're to be thankful for everything. And sometimes in my time with God in the mornings, I go through a little mental exercise of, of just in my imagination, I just walk through our house. I don't get up and actually walk, walk through the house, but in my mind, I just walk through the house and I look at the furniture and I look at the food in the refrigerator and I look at the car in the garage and these things in my mind and I say, Lord, everything in this house is a gift from you. And we're to do that. But you know, when we pray, when we realize our helplessness, And when we believe that God has the power to meet that situation and when we ask him to do it and he answers that prayer, this sort of an an exceptional way in which we stop and we give thanks to God. Because he has just delivered us from a situation in which we had no power, no control over. And we have been vividly reminded of our helplessness. And then when he relieves our situation... When he answers our prayer, we give him thanks. And this is why Paul wanted many people to pray. And this is one of the reasons why we should pray, because, as I said, when we pray, we, bring, we consciously bring God into the situation. Now, the fact is, God is in every situation. But when we pray, we consciously bring God into the situation. And then we see God at work, and then we give him thanks. Many of you will remember the space shuttle. can't even remember the name of it. We've had several. It uh, wasn't the shuttle. No, it wasn't the shuttle at all. It was the, it was the moon shot in 1972, you know, when the astronauts were going to the moon and um, something went wrong in the, in the oxygen system. And, uh, you know, they realized that they had to abort the mission. And there was a question of whether or not uh, they would be able to recover those men and bring them back or whether they would just be lost in space and eventually die in space. And the President of the United States publicly asked the nation to pray for the safe return of the astronauts. And they did return. And when they were safely aboard the aircraft carrier In the Pacific, the President of the United States publicly praised American space technology for the safe return of the astronauts. One of the purposes of prayer is that we might see God answer prayer and that we might give him the glory. Shall we pray? Our Father, we freely acknowledge that there's a great deal of mystery about our prayer life. Most of us have prayed on a number of occasions for a specific request and for reasons known only to yourself, you have not answered those prayers and sometimes we become discouraged and we think, what's the use? May we be reminded this morning from our text Not only that we are indeed dependent on you and helpless to do anything about our plight, 
but that you are all-powerful, that nothing is too hard for you. And then, Father, we also acknowledge that despite the fact that there are many times when it seems as if you have not answered prayer, at least in the way that we had requested, help us to remember that there are many, many more times when you have answered our prayers. And may we be faithful to give you thanks. May we rejoice in thanking you for the times when you have intervened and you have specifically and clearly answered our prayers. And Father, again, we ask even this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let me ask you to stand for the benediction, please. And Jerry, thank you. The response to the benediction this morning is Jesus uh, is Lord. Hallelujah. Uh, Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.